the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the In Social Work podcast. I'm Peter Sabota. Good as usual to have you along. No one should really be shocked that black men in the United States have rates of depression and other emotional distress that are disproportionately higher than other racial groups. This is even more concerning given that black men also seek out mental health care at lower rates and suffer from higher misdiagnosis when they do. We aren't clueless, however. There is literature that provides some insight into what does seem to work and help black men, young and old. Our guest today, Dr. Hussein Latif, is exploring this disparity and is helping identify what may assist black men not only to seek help, but to promote positive and helpful mental health outcomes for themselves and their communities. Here's the teaser. Dr. Latif is learning that an Afrocentric worldview, including Ubuntu, an African philosophy that emphasizes collectivism, community, compassion, and being human through other people, promotes improved mental health among black men. So it's clear social relationships and networks are key. Dr. Latif will tell us what he's learning, why he does the research he does, and what might be the practice implications of his findings so far. Dr. Hussein Latif, PhD, is assistant professor at the Brown School at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Hi, Hussein. Welcome to In Social Work. Hi, Peter. Nice to meet you. Good to see you on a Monday morning. Happy Monday. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's let's do the best we can. Before we get to your research and your scholarly interests and your and your story about the work you're doing, would you be willing? I'm always curious how our guests end up in the social work profession. Yes. I mean, if you would just, you know, maybe somewhat briefly give us that path. I, I know I'd love to hear it. Great. Well, sure. Well, again, thank you so much for having me, Peter. So just briefly, my path to social work, it starts really when I was an undergrad. So I was a psychology major at Morehouse College, and I really benefited a lot in terms of my preparedness for research in that environment. And also the psychology program was excellent. I think I took like six research and statistics courses <laughs> in wow. that process. Yeah, it was pretty rigorous. The first stats class was everything was by hand. So we had to do equations. And then it wasn't until stats two that we got to play around with software. But anyway, when I was there, you know, I was introduced to a lot of theories about human behavior, Mm -hmm. uh, human development. And, you know, I guess a little bit what we might talk about later is I've always had an interest in, you know, helping young people in terms of their process of becoming uh, adults. And so psychology was a good fit. But I want to say somewhere between my junior and senior year, I started to kind of have this this aha moment to where I wasn't so sure about the complete role of people's mindsets, Mm -hmm. being the primary causal factors for outcomes. And so I was still searching and trying to figure out, you know, I need something that helps me kind of pair, you know, this very important psychological work But what I'm really seeing in community, what I know from community and what people have told me and what I'm starting to experience in these various internships I'm doing. So I was really looking for more training and environment. And so eventually through enough searching and talking to mentors, uh, I ended up applying to the University of Michigan to pursue my MSW. Yeah. 
Well, you know, I'm I'm nodding my head, and this is not my podcast. This is your podcast, <laughs> but um, very similar story on my end. Mm. It uh, you know, no offense to psychology, it just yeah. I, it just the environmental stuff just was addressed. I think better in That's social true. work, and that just fit. Well, thanks, thanks so much for giving that brief, and we're glad to have you as a member. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, so today. We want to talk about some of the work that you've been doing. So I laid out a little bit of that in the intro. I think it's probably best to turn this over to you. Would you start by just telling us what your kind of background is that informs your research? Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. What kind of research do you do and, and what informs that? Absolutely. Well, uh, again, thank you, Peter, for the question. And, you know, if I was to summarize my work pretty, pretty straightforward, I would say it. At its core, I'm interested in the process of how do I help how to help young adolescent black persons in the U.S. make that transition from adolescence to established adulthood. And that's really what I'm concerned about. And so the process of getting to that research and again, I'll try to think about brevity here. <laughs> well, um, don't don't be too brief here. This <laughs> is this is why we came. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's interesting, like over the years, you know, it's kind of like doing a regression model. You start to think about all these different factors that are pulling on, you know, the outcome and uh, explain different levels of variance in terms of the explanation. I think in some ways it's kind of the same for me. But when I think about two factors, you know, and again, I, I liked your first question about how I came to social work because I do still, even though I'm a researcher, at the core of what I do, I see myself as a social work practitioner uh, who uses research methods to inform practice. Mm-hmm. And then with like with social work education, like, you know, we tell students often that, you know, the process of coming to know something is just as important as getting to the actual services that we provide. Because the way we come to know our, you know, more researchy, the epistemologies, the way we come to know something has a direct impact on how we see something and then what we do with that phenomenon. So for me, I would say the two variables or the two factors that really influence how I come to my research. One was, I would say, my parents and just my early environment. I'm Ah. originally from rural Georgia. I come from middle class, rural Georgia community. But my parents in particular were really keen and, and, and I think really successful at allowing me to my first understanding of Blackness, Black people, was to see Black people as people. And that might seem like really kind of like, of course, Black people are people. But the reality is that when we look at the literature and we look at the policies and we look at the lived experiences, we see that there's a history of dehumanization. So mm-hmm. my parents were very, very keen to make sure that how I saw Blackness, I saw myself, was from a prevention standpoint and not much an, an, an intervention. So. I think that has always stayed with me. So when I address problems or I think about, you know, research is always thinking about strengths. But also I, I had the, the great fortune. I went to Morehouse College, uh, which is an HBCU. It's uh, mm-hmm. really well known for in terms of being an institution for producing young black men who go on to graduate school and so forth. But, you know, in my my own experience and in talking with many of my friends who went there at a deep structural level, you know, Morehouse has a very Afrocentric approach. And what that means, you know, and again, just kind of common language is that it's a centering, a centering of the strengths of African descent populations and people, again, coming from this idea that what is 
African, what is Black, is still a part of normative human expressions. And so, as I mentioned, I was in psychology and I had really great mentors and a lot of classes that stressed strengths. And many of my, my teachers saw that I was having this great interest in inform, using that to inform my work. And so they encouraged me actually to go to West Africa so that I could kind of triangulate. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So oh. I, was, I was encouraged to go to West Africa to kind of triangulate, you know, some of the literature that I was gaining around cultural and strengths in the U.S. and the Caribbean and to kind of pair that with uh, some of those connections with West Central Africa. So I spent a, a good amount of time studying in um, northern Ghana. And so I was able to take coursework on African ethnobotany and learning about indigenous perspectives of the interconnection between people and uh, plant life. And then also I took courses in African sociology and also Whoa. theory courses in Pan-Africanism. So, so by the time I got to social work, Peter, it was like, it was like, it's a wrap. You know, this is what is going to be a part of my work. <laughs> you know, it was so funny. I mean, it's not funny. I think when you said when you were at Michigan, you were listening and learning about strengths. I was going to be a wise guy and say, well, which version of the strengths? Because I was wondering if it, if really you were not you were going to get the Eurocentric approach, but wow, you kept talking and what a pleasant surprise! Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, wonderful. So all of that makes perfect sense to me because I do know that what you're really interested in is how black men, especially whether or not they adhere or to what degree they adhere to Afrocentric cultural norms affects their behavior, including how do they seek help at all and what they seek help for. So I know that's what is the focus of a lot of your research. Given all those experiences that you had, and of course you have life experience as well, was there a gap? And if so, what was it that motivated you to do the work that you're doing now? Absolutely. Well, again, thank you for the question. And it's kind of um, it's kind of like you said, Peter, it's, it's kind of a shared combination between lived experiences and also my my appraisal of the current literature. So from, you know, more so like a lived experience perspective. So as I mentioned, I was very fortunate to come from a, a background, a positionality that allowed me to see the strengths of black people, black communities. But my adolescent years, I actually moved to an urban environment. And this was really for me, I think, also a pivotal moment because it was, this was the first time when I really started to feel that sense of minority, minority sense of Black identity, right? And then what comes with the process of becoming a minority in terms of discrimination and, you know, microaggressions and in, in many cases, blocked aggressions as well. But it was really in high school that I, you know, starting to realize that, you know, I'm one of five young Black males graduating out of a class of 600 people, Whoa. something's wrong, right? And so for me, really going into college, I was really keen to try to understand some of the factors. And it's, it's not simple. I think that's the part of what research really is helpful for us to see is that it's never like this, you know, this first order thinking process. If you just go to school, everything gets better. There's this ecological model, right? And these various processes 
coming from the environment, coming from a structural level, and you know, deep, direct and indirect that are all pushing on outcomes that we see in marginalized individuals and communities. And so it was that was really the, the first piece that sparked my interest to kind of get into this work that I do. So again, you know, as I'm going through this academic journey from undergrad through graduate school as a master's student, I actually, you know, it's interesting, Peter, like I never intended to get a PhD. Huh. I, I had no interest, really. I mean, I've always loved reading, always been like a seeker of you know knowledge and I love learning things, but I wasn't necessarily keen on getting a PhD to do that. Mm-hmm. But it was like, you know, as we talked about, like my experience at Michigan and what you thought you were going to hear. You know, one thing that I did find in terms of the social work literature while I was at Michigan is that it just wasn't robust enough in my estimation Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. focused on the strengths of black communities. And so that's what really spurred me to get into the academic space to make a contribution and also to focus on some of these disparities that I was concerned about. Yeah. So thanks. The paper that really caught our eye in terms of, you know, inviting you on to talk with you was, might have been one of your latest papers, I think, but it's adherence to African-centered norms and help seeking for emotional distress among Black males. You mentioned Afrocentricity. Yes. Is I'm going to ask a really dumb question. Is, <laughs> no dumb <is>, questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably ask you, no, I'm going to, not probably. Would you kind of just lay that out in a little more detail? And is, is that necessarily the same thing as African-centered norms? Good question. So there is a very <laughs> robust diversity of literature on how to define what is <laughs> Afrocentric theory, what is an Afrocentric framework, and what is African-centeredness. And how these terms are used are used both to define a paradigm in terms of a way of of, a way of seeing a life phenomenon. And then sometimes Afrocentric or even African-centered theory is used as as a means of a framework to guide, you know, practice or to guide research. And then also sometimes African-centered or Afrocentric is used as a theory to try to explain the relationship between potential outcomes. So in, from, in my work, you know, in some of the other papers that I've done, what I've been working on is helping to kind of bring that literature to social work to try to unpack a lot of that. So at a paradigm level, Afrocentricity or Afrocentricness or African-centricness has in many ways, these are synonyms to one another in terms of a way as a means of centering methods, approaches, ideas of human development, or even being this ontology that are derived from African descent populations. And I think that's probably going to be the most fair definition to use because some of these frameworks are from the diaspora. So you'll have like the Nguzu Saba or Afrocentricity theory, which are from the diaspora. But then you also have perspectives and frameworks that are more ethno-cultural or linguistic connected that are derived from the continent. So in my work, I've been advancing studies and also theory that looks at both ethno-linguistic cultural models of Afrocentric thought, but also using more Pan-African or uh, we say African diasporal thoughts of what is African-centeredness. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. 
more than I asked for it, in fact. Yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> Thank you. I think in some of the uh, a prep that I had for talking with you, I, I came across, I'm not even sure I'm going to say this correctly, Ubuntu? Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Okay, yeah. And that sounded like a a large focus on collectivism, yeah. compassion, affirming, and looking at the greater whole as the benefit of yeah. activity and thought. Not exactly the U.S. Eurocentric capitalist model. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I was thinking, um, you, and I'm, I'm going to ask you about your paper and what you did and, and this particular study, but I also was thinking, obviously, you know, the low-hanging fruit here is, in some ways, it's really a chore to think about why Black young men and men in general would seek help in the formal places that people do. I mean, I mean, the mistrust alone. I think we all know that most of the models, if not all of the models of, of counseling and therapy or the helping professions were not developed with or for people other than white people primarily. Many providers the vast majority of providers are not black. Yeah. And we in the helping professions, there's a, you know, a pretty awful history of exploitation and and mistreatment, flat out mistreatment yeah. of black folks. So we want to hear all about it because yeah. <laughs> the, the machine is or the services are not built. Yeah to be fair, for Black folks and and Black men in general. So when it comes to your latest study, what what were you chasing? What did you do? (laughs) Well, I'm really, I really thank you for that question. It it actually has a pretty long story, so I'll give you the the medium version. Um, (laughs) Because there were a lot of goals with that paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I actually just wanted to lift up something that you said, is that you're absolutely right, Peter, that a lot of uh, the current frameworks of how we get to the current mental health services were not designed to be of assistance to diverse populations, including Black people. And in fact, in, you know, in the autobiography of Malcolm X, he actually talks about in the first chapter that it was a social worker who actually mm-hmm. broke up his family. Mm-hmm. It was a social worker that the, the impacts of that social worker working with the system that led to their breakup and him going to a foster home and his mother getting placed into a ward uh, for men- emotional distress for the breakdown of her other uh, family. So we we have a history of harm that is connected to a lot of this. And so it, it does create this really unfortunate situation, knowing how important getting help is, but then having to deal with the, the real nuance that a lot of communities are coming with a lot of mistrust. But so relating that to the paper, so there were a couple things that I was trying to address 
with the paper that you're discussing. So one was to advance, in many ways, the theoretical work of Afrocentric or African-centered thought. So a lot of this work came to full awareness in the U.S. in the 1960s during the Black Studies movement, very much aligned with the civil rights movement. And so with that influx, are the increased number of Black students going into predominantly white institutions. There was this whole kind of paradigm shift of wanting to kind of revolutionize the way education was taught and the type of curriculum. And so one of those outcomes really was the advancement of, you know, these culturally centered models and theories. And so Afrocentric theory is a part of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the underlying assumptions when it comes to thinking about Afrocentric theory in context of mental health research and also practice is that populations of African descent in the diaspora are a part of the kaleidoscope of what is African communal or African culture are part of that, that spectrum. And so that is something that has been debated. You've had uh, various scholars, actually social workers who argued for this kind of like tabula rasa approach to black communities. There's actually, I'm skipping on the name of the author at the, at the moment, but the name of the book is, uh, I believe it's a uh, black life. Uh, But it's a book that was written in the 60s, but essentially argued for social workers. And it was actually written for social workers that Black American communities uh, did not have a culture and that this was because of the the impact of the transatlantic slave trade and that the, the brutality of slavery completely dehumanized people from thinking about what is innately human, which is to have culture, even with, you know, trauma there's still cultural processes happening. So this is actually, you know, one of the texts that has informed much of how social work developed its thought around Black people is that you're dealing with people who don't have anything, so anything you give them will work. So that's one camp. Oh boy, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's one camp. But the other camp that kind of developed out of this was the African-centered camp, which said, no, persons of African descent, Black people in the U.S., Black people in the Caribbean still do have an intact culture. The problem is, is that you're not seeing culture as it is, which is dynamic, changes, it modifies with environment. It's not going to always look like it's a parental uh, view, but there's still very much culture there because one of the underlying con- you know, ideas of what it means to be human, and while there's a lot of debates on what makes us distinct from our, our, our friends and colleagues on the earth and their species, culture <laughs> <laughs> Culture seems to be something that is, is unique to human development. So African-centered camp argues that populations of Africans in diaspora are part of that kaleidoscope of, of African communities. And that, and when it relates to mental health research, that it's important to consider as part of the many other variables that we think about. Mm-hmm. So one of the things with that argument, though, that I was finding and I've done other papers to look at where have we how, where have we gotten here in the 21st century with that that idea. But most of what I was finding was around the advocacy. I saw a lot of work around the advocacy for African-centered approaches, a lot of work around the importance of African-centered approaches, but not many papers, particularly in social work at all, that really advanced how these things connected to variables that we care about as a profession, which is how do we help people thrive, improve mental health, given their context and and so forth. So one goal of the paper was to actually test. This is kind of going back to my doctoral studies reading Popper, but, you know, to actually test this, this perspective, this hypothesis that 
populations within diaspora, if this theory of kaleidoscope of African spectrum is holds, we should see very similar ways, uh, not necessarily exact, but similar ways of conceptualization around concepts. So in this case, in the paper that uh, we're looking at or we're talking about, I wanted to look at Ubuntu. So Ubuntu is a, is a, a construct uh, that in many ways is spread across West Central Africa in some pockets of East Africa with the Ubuntu linguistic community cultures. But it comes from this axiom that's from the Nguni people in South Africa that says, that a person is a person because of others, right? And that's what Ubuntu comes from, is that I am because you are, you are because I am. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments of, or what actually has been seen in, in literature around you know, cultural strengths in the U.S. is that one of those cultural themes that does seem to be still very much part of Black life in America is collectivism, communalism, that this is seen as one of those resiliency cultural retentions that are still very much embedded in Black communities in the diaspora. But there hadn't actually been any studies to actually directly develop a measure of Ubuntu and to see if it would work with Black diasporal populations. And so this study was actually at its core a, a confirmatory factor analysis, a structural equation model, measurement model paper to see if a measure of Ubuntu, as was developed by some colleagues in South Africa, very rigorous process uh, to see yeah. if this same measure could be used uh, in a cross-cultural context with Black Americans. And for me, this was very important because even when we think about research, it's typically always a West to the rest approach that, you know, most of the work that we're doing with other communities is that we see, you know, the West as being the seat of advancement, knowledge, right. and treatment. But for this paper, I, I really wanted to turn it on its head and really focus on you know, drawing on the the rich human developmental concepts that come from the what's you know some call the global south, and to see if those have benefit in the Western context. So, mm-hmm. it was a measurement model to test whether the measure that was developed in South Africa to express Ubuntu could also apply in the U.S. context. So, long story short, that mm-hmm. measure has three factors. One is humanism, compassion, and interdependence. And I actually mm. tested. Uh, using the sample of young black males and did find that the measure worked quite well. Uh, it did. The, it, yes, it worked quite well. Uh, and in fact, the fit indices that we use to try to see whether or not a measure can be used or is, is performing the way it's intended uh, were all excellent, meaning that the way it was intended to be used in South Africa amongst populations there was very similar to how the participants perceived the questions and how it perform. So in one mm-hmm. level, that was in support. It gave really from an, you know, and I'm not an empiricist, but I, from an empirical perspective, it did give quantitative support for the idea that mm-hmm. perceptions of collectivism that are shared on the continent, particularly in South Africa in this context of Ubuntu, can be seen as being similar to, uh, to African diaspora populations in the U.S. So that was really cool finding for me. Yeah. Fundamental. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fundamental. But the next real question is, like, OK, that's great. Does it, <laughs> is it <laughs> that's great. But does it what is it? How does it help anything? Is it, is it beneficial towards something? So, again, the second hypothesis I was looking to test was really, you know, again, theoretically, and some of this had been done. There's a very rich tradition of studying religiosity among black Americans. And in many ways, it's very 
tie to the idea of collectivism, even if indirectly because of the supports that come through, you know, the church tradition that's there. Mm-hmm. But there's a another argument within the literature that collectivism or communalism is also one of, as I, I may have mentioned a few moments ago, one of the buffering factors that have been meaningful for Black communities in the process of dealing with the the wave of discrimination and oppression that our communities have have experienced in the West. So one of the things that hadn't been studied very much in the literature is seeking help in the context of professional health, mental health services. So okay, that's what I was going to ask. So the measurement, we're not talking about family, friends, church, no. for example. We're talking no. about professional services. Yes. Okay, And that was the nuance that I wanted to address because the literature is really clear that you know, within the U.S., Black Americans do seek help, but typically those help-seeking processes are through family, as you mentioned, family, community, and also religious institutions, mm-hmm. which is an, it has important benefits. But again, there are some things, you know, as we continue to grow the literature around mental health, there are some things that are best situated through professional mental health services. And as we've been talking about, you know, giving against this wave of the history of discrimination and mistrust, you know, I'm also a part of my work trying to uncover things that might help or might help to explain or might be beneficial to bolster that may encourage mental health seeking among vulnerable population, in this case, black males, young black men. And so the the second piece of this paper was to see, okay, if we have Ubuntu and we have different scores varying from high scores of Ubuntu to low, and if we control for some of these other variables such as SES, does Ubuntu explain? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry I cut you off there because while you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, socioeconomic status yeah. and then you said it, but then I missed what you said after that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. So the, the next real piece of that paper was to see while controlling for some of these other variables, how does Ubuntu relate to seeking help during emotional distress, but specifically from a professional mental health provider? And so one interesting or really neat finding from this paper was indeed, I found that young Black men who reported higher scores of Ubuntu were more likely to see the benefit and value of seeking professional mental health services from whether that be a a counselor or a social worker uh, than those who had lower scores. So yeah, so that was essentially the major findings from that paper. Mm -hmm. And wow, was that unexpected or expected? You know, I wasn't actually sure what I was going to find. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, you know, in some ways, I would have expected help-seeking behavior if it was like from family or friends. But, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in one of the things I said in the paper, and I, I don't try to use this too much, but some of my senior colleagues say I should because it's, it's a fact. But this is, you know, one of the first papers to actually do this is to actually see does Ubuntu actually relate to help seeking for professional mental health services. So because I hadn't seen papers, you know, that really focused on looking at Ubuntu in context to service provider seeking of seeking help from service providers, I wasn't sure, but I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. So you're finding that men, especially who have the capacity for Ubuntu 
are more likely to seek professional services. Essentially, and and I guess one thing I would say about the measure is that, again, there were three different factors. So one level was compassion. And so some examples of compassion were like literally self-compassion was a part of that. Like you see yourself as being someone of worth. Uh, You see the worth of other people. You see it important to have kindness towards yourself and others. Then there was another subscale on humanism. Like you, you see your shared humanity. You can acknowledge that, you know, you, you are a person in that you can see the, the shared personhood of another. And then the, the third factor was interdependence, which is that you see the importance of seeing your life being connected with others, that you normalize interdependence as a normative way of addressing solutions. You know, it's, and so it wasn't just Ubuntu as a, as a total construct, but each one of those sub, subscales or sub factors played an important role in terms of professional attitudes towards seeking help. And so really it's some of the implications that I was working through in that paper, and I'm still talking about this in other papers, is that when we think about uh, potentially one way of actually doing assessment or thinking about intake is like, you know, how how does this person, how does this young person actually perceive their own self-worth? How do they see their, their worth for having compassion? How do they see the the value in seeking just interdependence and not having to do things on your own? And then also, how do you see yourself as being a human being and also the humanity of others? So at a deep structural level, those seem to be some of the, at least for this paper, that seem to be of benefit for this population. It sounds like, let's just, we'll, we'll talk about Black men. They possess these capacities, which leads them to be interdependent and to overcome mistrust and to reach out largely to a system that has not been friendly to their needs over time, that has not been prepared for their needs. So it seems backwards to me. These capacities are obviously helpful in terms of them seeking help, but where black folks are going for help involves a leap of faith for them. And it's because they have compassion and interdependence that they're willing to make that leap of faith. I just wonder where's the leap of faith and the compassion from the treatment services toward them. And what are we willing to do to acknowledge and accommodate? and to promote those yeah. values in those systems. Absolutely. I don't know, does that make any sense? It, no, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense, Peter. And I think really what you're, what you're sharing is, you know, in like all papers, we always talk about the limitations, but that's really one of the things that has to be unpacked. Really, I see as a next step with this, this particular paper that you're discussing is that, you know, it could be that because of these different variables that, a bad experience with a mental health provider mm-hmm. doesn't become internalized and instead is externalized and saying, this has nothing to do with me. This has something to do with that provider or this organization. Let me go and seek somewhere else. Right. So one of the things that I want to look at is also, as you mentioned, some of these other variables looking at grit, for example, does. So grit is a variable that, is being studied as being very important in terms of how we 
continue in in terms of in, uh, in situations where perseverance is necessary. And it's in a, on a normative level, you know, currently that finding a social worker or a mental health provider who's going to work with you is is a challenge sometimes. And sometimes that first that first that first uh, even when the system's built for you, even it when is. it's <laughs> even when the system is working, you could find yourself normatively having to switch counselor or provider you know, anywhere from one to three times, maybe. Right. So on one level, I wonder if because of some of these acceptances of Ubuntu, if it allows to provide a buffering factor against some of these negative experiences to be able to keep seeking help that works, that's possible. Yeah. Also a variable that's not in the study that needs to be accounted for would be something around, particularly around mistrust and seeing how it you know, Ubuntu maybe moderates that, yeah. uh, that process. And so all good questions for future work. <laughs> yeah. And like how to foster that, how to kind of almost build that in. Yeah. I'll tell you, Peter, it was, um, you know, one of the things I love about writing is that I had a really great mentor when I was a doc student that told me like writing clarifies thinking. So the more you write, it helps you actually get through more ideas. But one of the things that this paper actually led me to, and I think maybe I'm jumping to maybe future questions, but, you know, opened a whole new area of literature to look at around self-reliance. So even though the research, yeah, yeah, even though the literature around Ubuntu is still nascent and still developing, there's a very extensive literature that's been developing in men's studies and also, I think, in social work to some extent that shows that. Uh, self-reliant. Actually, there's a colleague, and I'm, I'm skipping on her name at the moment. It was published in Social Work. It actually looks at the self-reliance and depression among young Black men. Uh, but one of the things that is very common in men who internalize Western norms around masculinity is this idea of I've got to do it myself. If a man doesn't stand on his own two feet, you're not a man. And right. so these ideas around masculinity are very detrimental to mental health and they're actually Mm -hmm. antithetical to seeking help and also using maladaptive coping mechanisms. And so in many ways, you know, this paper was to try to see, well, if we know self-reliance is a problem, what happens if we actually look at collectivism, Ubuntu, expressions of attitudes, accepting uh, norms that are antithetical to self-reliance? Yeah. And if you just kind of play some of the ideas out, you don't seek help. Yeah. Depression, I think, plays out differently in men and in women. And I think men tend to have a tendency, I think, at least in the literature for externalizing behaviors. Yeah. Which kind of then feeds into the whole trope, really. Yeah. About black men as aggressive and violent when in a sense they're depressed yeah and they don't have options for help yeah so oh boy (laughs) yeah there's a lot to think about here and a lot to do so you have already i think talked about where you'd like to go in the work and i know i'm thinking I'm thinking about what are the implications for practice? And I think you have already tried to bridge that gap. 
What it brings to mind is the movement in in the healthcare professions toward a trauma informed services and delivery yeah. systems, and in you know in some places that are really getting it, they're also thinking about human rights mm-hmm. in in terms of forming the systems. It, it seems like that would go a bit of a way toward what you're learning, but not entirely. There's still a pretty long way to go. Yeah. Have you thought about policy implications? Absolutely. What could change at the policy level? Absolutely. If at all, based on what you're learning? Well, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, again, being social workers, we're always thinking about the different levels of practice. So meso, micro, and also macro policy implications. And, you know, again, a lot of my work is, I think, uh, when I was in my doctoral studies, even in undergrad and my master's, it's like, you know, one goal of my work is I want to get to a place to where I have very clear information that if there's a, a parent or a young person that needs, you know, some advice that we can use at an interpersonal level on variables that might help, that might be beneficial, that we have answers to those. But also at a community level, if we have communities who are trying to organize and to build coalitions and to try to figure out how to, you know, think about new ways to provide service, that we have some answers on how to do that uh, with this population. And also, I'm thinking about this at a policy level as well. I think for me, at this stage in my, my scholarship, the biggest policy, well, not the biggest, but one of the policy implications that I'm really interested in is how we, I think to what you just shared, is how do we think about the process of measuring, the process of diagnosing behaviors, problems, and how do we think about Mm -hmm. uh, providing interventions or preventions to that? One, actually, what you just shared previously about this connection between externalizing symptoms and depression, that was actually a paper I just published like like two months ago, uh, looking at young Black males externalizing behaviors and depression. And then indeed, I, I did find what you shared is that, you know, depression is a direct link to externalizing behaviors of aggression in this population. And this is also common among other male populations. So mm-hmm. one of the things I'm really interested in is when we, how do we diagnose problems? And, and this particularly young males, this applies to those who are still in high school, you know, our young males, not young men, but young males. And then also those who might be at the collegial level struggling. And so often, you know, my practice experience is working in criminal justice and I worked with juvenile homicide offenders. And I'll never forget one of the things that the board told us when we were trying to explain the mental health implications of this client we were working with. And I I remember a board member said, if we considered mental health for everyone, if we considered mental health, we would have to consider it for everyone because everyone seems to have a mental health problem. And it's like, yeah. There's, there's, mm-hmm. it's, that's there. And we're using criminal justice system as basically as a warehouse to store people with untreated mental health needs. And so at a policy level, for me, I'm, I'm still thinking, I'm not, I don't have the full answer yet, but sure. thinking about how this work can translate into thinking about how we can diagnose, how we can assess, and also think about implications for intervention and prevention. Yeah, well, your passion for your work is very evident. You know, we're getting close to the end of our time here, so I'm, I'm really trying to that think was of... fast, Peter. Of, <laughs> it went by so fast. No kidding. 
Yeah, I'm glad you're still writing. We got room for more podcasts. So Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I guess, you know, before I wrap it up, or we wrap it up, I kind of, a lot of what I said reflected my own curiosity and, and uh, based on what you're talking about. But I want to leave you some space to talk about something maybe that we didn't get to or, or even an idea that you might want to tuck here and at the end. So there it is. If you would, um, if you'd like to take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've been really thorough. And again, thank you so much for having me. I, I would probably just conclude with just talking a little bit about where I'm going with yeah. this work. So, you know, it's been, it's been a great couple years of exploring and trying some new concepts and I'm still advancing that work now, developing measures to help better understand some of these relationships. And so one of the things, though, I'm also trying to embed or infuse with my work is, that, you know, as you know, we had this global pandemic. Uh, heard. <laughs> yeah, it was, just, it was, you know, a small thing that happened just a few years ago. Mm, it's <laughs> but, over, too, as I understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've heard it completely over. <laughs> but no, uh, but yeah, so, you know, really infusing and thinking about, you know, this this really life altering experience that we've had and, you know, looking into exploring how or how not this experience of the pandemic has kind of complicated or made these issues more complex. And so that's one of the things I see in, in some of the limitations of what I've been able to do thus far. And then also, you know, one of the things I'm interested in doing kind of moving forward is more longitudinal analysis. So a lot of the work that I've done you know, in looking at these relationships, you know, building this kind of proof of mechanism is cross-sectional in nature. And we know that cross-sectional work is important, but, you know, we really need to do more longitudinal work to be able to look at more causal relationships. So yeah, kind of where I'm going in the next couple of years. Yeah. Well, thanks. You know, you know, just if I could toss a couple of things that you've invited me to think about and to connect, which is the fun part, really. Yeah. It was only a few months ago that we had a social work scholar from UC Berkeley, uh, Tina Sachs, on our oh, show. Okay. And and she, I don't know if you know Tina, but she's yeah. she's awesome. And she was talking about how middle class women of black women, not women of color, which is black women literally prepare themselves extensively for their contact with health professionals of all kinds, including physicians, including dressing up, reading about their symptoms and wearing, for example, if they're professionals, they leave on their name tags so that they get treated with respect or at least stack the deck in their favor so that they get um, treated with respect and dignity when they seek services themselves. And thanks for your willingness to come on. Absolutely. And talk about what you're doing to really help all of us get it, if you will. Hussein, thanks so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks again to Hussein Latif for joining us. The In Social Work podcast team working collectively for the greater whole, our Steve Sturman, our chair and all-around tech guru, our super graduate production assistant and guest coordinator, Nick DeSmet. Say hi, Nick. Hey, everybody. And me, Peter Sabota. 
Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk with you again soon, everybody. Hey, how do you listen to or use our podcast? We lie awake at night wondering. Please drop us a line at insocialwork.org or insocialwork at buffalo.edu and let us know. 